Good evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. I have several interviews to share tonight. The first is with Linwood Gill, the chief forester for USAL Redwood Forest Company, which is owned by the Redwood Forest Foundation, a nonprofit whose vision is to establish community-based forests that provide both critical habitat for increased biodiversity and improved regional economic vitality. And the second interview was recorded with a local fisheries expert, Dave Wright, and with Ken Smith, a licensed timber operator and the owner of Pacific Inland Incorporated. And our discussion was based on how a unique approach to restoring wood densities in creeks and streams began in the watersheds on the Mendocino coast. And just a note that tonight's show is pre-recorded, so I won't be able to field any calls. Before I share my conversations with Linwood, Dave, and Ken, and since we received more rain in the area recently, I'd like to give a quick update on this year's salmon run. The recent rain was really beneficial to this year's run of spawning adult salmon, It provided a boost of stream flow that allowed salmon who have been holding in the lower portions of the rivers to move upstream. So during that last storm, during the week of December 13th, um, there were about 60 coho salmon that entered the Noyo River, and that actually brings the season total to 63. So most of our salmon had started running um, during that big storm on the 13th. And then in the Eel River, there's about 447 Chinook salmon that have been counted at the Van Arsdale Fish Ladder. One thing that's kind of interesting about this year's spawning run is that during spawning ground surveys in Mendocino coastal streams and rivers, uh, fisheries biologists are finding more Chinook spawners than um, are typically seen in the past few years. And these fish have been observed in the Garcia River, the Albion River, Big River, and Noyo River. And there's probably two reasons why this is true. One would be associated with the significant rainfall that the coast received in October of this year. And then also Chinook tend to run the earliest on the coast, and they do tend to occupy bigger river system. So that's why we're probably seeing them in those places. Uh, the, the researchers also have noticed more steelhead spawning in December than they'd seen in the past. Usually steelhead spawning begins later in the winter in the streams around here. Um, typically they're observed in January, but, um, they've come in early this year. In honor of the salmon return, and since it was just Christmas, I'm going to share my fishy rendition of a common Christmas tale. Twas the night before Christmas, and out in the streams, all the creatures were drifting towards a long winter dream. The stream gravels were sorted by the largewood with care, and hopes that a salmonid would soon be there. Some eggs were already nestled, all snug in their reds, while visions of caddisflies swirled in their heads. And the long redwood roots and mycorrhizae that wrap were just settling down for a wet winter nap. When suddenly outside there arose such a clatter that I knew right away I must get to the root of the matter. 
Away to the river, I flew like a flash, tore open the truck door, and pressed on the gas. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a silverback salmon and eight jacks at her rear. When my eyes finally focused so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be a fish. It flashed in the water, plunged to the fathoms, and drifted off like the down of a parachute atoms. To the top of the riffle, to the tail of the pool, the salmon it danced like thread from a spool. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. Away to their natal spawning grounds they sped, with a belly full of eggs to a freshly made red. And then, in a buzz, I heard in the water the, th- the splashing and thrashing of many tailfins of daughters. As I focused my eyes through the turbulent torrent, flashes of silver and red filled the river without warrant. They were large and loud and fast and glossy. They schooled up in pools in a very large posse. They filled up the river in masses so thick, it seemed like a person could pass on their backs with no help from a stick. They forged up the stream like a train with no whistle. Away they all swam, and the water turned crystal. Alone on the bank of the river I stood, with only the sound of rain on my hood. As my shock and my awe slowly did temper, a feeling of joy started to pulse at my heart center. What a wondrous sight to observe and to hear, the honor of knowing the salmon are here. Home in the rivers where they first emerged, a life cycle continues, vitality resurged. And to those of you listening to this story of salmon and birthright, I say Merry Fishmas to all, and to all, a good night. And now for my discussion about forest management and restoration with Linwood Gill, Chief Forester for USAL Redwood Forest Company. Uh, The USAL Redwood Forest Company is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Redwood Forest Foundation, which is a private nonprofit, and it's dedicated to economy, ecology, and social equity in the Redwood region. So as a subsidiary of the Redwood Forest Foundation, USAL Redwood Forest Company also shares the same vision and mission as its parent organization. Ruffy started in the mid-90s when there was a lot of conflict uh, between the local environmental community, the loggers, uh, and they realized that there, there had to be a better way to manage timberland than have it owned by uh, out-of-country, out, excuse me, out-of-state, uh, out-of-the-area uh, corporations who basically you know, took the profits and took out of the county, took them out of the county. Mm -hmm. So um, they were trying to figure out a way to keep the funds into the county and into the local community for the benefit of the community. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so it's often referred to as a community forest, correct? It is. And, um, you know, that, that word means a lot to a lot of different people, a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, I know like the Arcata City Forest is a community forest, but that's really owned by the city of Arcata, mm-hmm. where uh, the Usal Redwood Forest is owned by a nonprofit and managed for the benefit of the community. Mm. Yes. So that's interesting. I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be a, a 
the normal framework for uh, a commercial timber company to operate within. Is that common, or is this no, a unique no, situation? No, it, it is a very unique situation, and uh, it's actually one of the reasons why I got drawn to the company, because it is something different. Um, you know, my, my background is more of a private consultant working with small non-industrial landowners who have a close tie to their properties, both uh, emotionally mm -hmm. and financially. And the idea of being able to work for a company that has very similar ties to their mm -hmm. land, they have a close uh, uh, attachment to you know, what goes on on their property, mm -hmm. yes. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. And then beyond that, um, what would you say guides the ethic of uh, management of that property? And maybe not just the um, kind of civil cultural parts that are related to managing the land, um, but, but what are some of the other considerations that the organization um, focuses on? Well, um, our mission statement pretty much lays it out. And, and basically, that's the, uh, the mission is to acquire, protect, restore, and manage forest lands and other related resources for the long-term benefit of the community. So in addition to, uh, you know, just like you say, the silvicultural aspect of it, uh, we are looking to restore the land and bring it back into real long-term health because the the long-term health of the forest is in the best benefit or the best uh, interest of the community mm -hmm. and of the forest itself. I was interviewing some other timber partners in the area. I asked both of them if they could describe to me what a healthy forest is. Um, I'm curious if you could provide your perspective on what that means. Um, there's never an easy answer to that question. Uh, I mean, in my mind, a uh, healthy, uh, healthy forest is, uh, has lots of different components. Uh, obviously, you know, the trees are growing well. We have a diversity of, uh, of trees, uh, tree sizes, uh, age classes, uh, species composition, um, everything I look at when I'm out there, I'm managing more on microsites. Uh, mm. What grows good here? What grows good there? And uh, and that's going to change mm -hmm. as you go across the landscape. Um, and then the other part of it that a lot of people don't refer to is is you know uh, the decay, the death, the decadency in mm. the in the forest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we like seeing down wood on the on the forest mm -hmm. floor. We like seeing uh, snags. Um, I've been known in my past practice to actually go out and, you know, girdle large trees for the sole intent of making large snags because mm -hmm. they are a part of the healthy forest ecosystem. Yeah, a really important part that reminds me of this memory I have as a college student taking forest biology and our professor walking us in the woods and pointing to a tree that was dead and saying, this tree has about a million more uses dead than it ever did alive. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, uh, I know the first time I, I actually uh, kind of experienced that, you know, years, years ago, 20-some years ago, and uh, the next 
spring, I was walking through the woods and I came across this tree that I, that I had girdled. And uh, here was a pileated woodpecker up there starting to peck away, get at the bugs that were starting to get into it. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, that actually worked. Yeah. Know? So. Um, that's always really rewarding. I mean, that's a form of restoration, right? In its own, in its own right. Yeah. Like this, yeah. Um, and you know, another part of, you know, the, the whole idea of the, of the healthy forest is, um, the long-term commitment of the, of the staff to work on it because then you see these types of things. The longer you work on a piece of property, the, the better you get to understand it mm -hmm. and how it functions and how the practices that you uh, put out there uh, affect the stance. Mm -hmm. Because not everything is the same. When you start talking about Ruffy and its ownership, uh, I mean, and one of the first things they did is they put a conservation easement on the property. Mm -hmm. So the property can never be subdivided. Uh, and there's certain guidelines within that easement of mm -hmm. how the property will be managed. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a big first step. You've kind of set in place the, you know, the idea that it's going to be managed in a similar way for a long mm -hmm. term. Uh, you mentioned the past management practice. Well, I mean, basically what happens is, you know, every time a timberland changes owners, uh, you know, the, one of the first things they, they do is figure out, okay, well, how are we going to pay for this thing we just bought? And we're no different. I mean, we, we have a loan. We're trying to pay off the property. Um, but when that ownership changes every, let's say, every 15, 20, or 30 years, uh, and that philosophy changes every time with it, then you're not really able to make any progress in a long-term, mm -hmm. uh, you know, goal for something that, you know, you're, you're talking about forests that you want to be at least 100 or 150 years old. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned one of the first kind of conservation measures that the organization put in place after acquiring their land was... Uh, a land protection measure, putting in a conservation easement. Um, Redwood Forest Foundation, at least from my perspective, um, tends to take on very kind of innovative conservation practices. So I would say, like, in addition to the easement, one of the first things I recognize is that the organization made a strong commitment to um, salmon and stream restoration. Um, can you talk a little bit more about other ways that Redwood Forest Foundation is kind of thinking and acting um, as a land manager a little bit differently. As far as on the ground uh, practices and how we're you know able to uh, function financially, uh, a big one is our carbon offset project because uh, with uh, what that has allowed us to do is realize uh, some in income. Uh, to help uh, pay off our debt and uh, do the practices that we want to do on the property at the same time allowing these young forests to grow and uh, and not be forced to harvest at a very high level uh, so that's that's huge our easement says we're gonna we can't cut more than 2.9 percent of our inventory and right now we're we're cutting less than, you know, 1% or half a percent of our inventory. I mean, the idea is to let those trees grow, and uh, the carbon offset project is what's allowed us to do that. 
Um, you know, we've tried other things uh, uh, to address the the challenge that we have out there with uh, with the species composition, primarily a much higher percentage of tan oak uh, on the landscape. Uh, we've tried uh, creating biochar, uh, harvesting uh, the tan oak uh, as part of our normal timber harvest operations and uh, creating another product out of it. Um, uh, while we've been able to make some really good biochar, making that work financially has been a bit of a challenge. Mm. Uh, so we're still trying to trying to pursue that. Um, and the other thing is, you know, as you mentioned, our focus on on restoration. Uh, we are looking at some other grant opportunities for shaded fuel breaks, some other uh, fuel reduction uh, activities. Uh, again, trying to focus on uh, improving that resiliency. Uh, of the of the forest. Can you explain a little bit about how what a fire resilient forest is and how you get there? Well, I think we're always learning, and that's the other, other thing of, of you know my philosophy is we we always learn from the forest. So I don't have the answer mm -hmm. to how to make that happen. Um, the, the main thing is, and, and resiliency in my mind means that if you have a fire that goes through the property. Uh, it doesn't become a, a stand replacement fire. You're not burning up everything that's out there. Uh, ideally, the fire you know, drops to the ground, uh, doesn't underburn, cleans out uh, the understory vegetation, allows that material to uh, you know, provide nourishment, uh, nutrients for, for the soil. Uh, so, so the trick is to, uh, and I say the trick, what we're experimenting with, what we're going to try to do, is to you know thin the stands, uh, decrease that uh, you know that fuel ladder so the fires stay down low, and the stands are able to uh, withstand fire as it goes through. Um, another thing that you know we we've tried along the lines and to kind of to mimic that approach is. Uh, our approach of using uh, variable retention as a silvicultural method. Um, I know VRs uh, sometimes don't uh, get the best uh, uh, press, if you will, or understanding by the public of how they how they can be used. But um, and even when I started this job, you know, three years ago, I have to admit I was kind of skeptical about using variable retention. But after you know working on the landscape and seeing how it how it can be used and actually mimic what uh, occurs in a natural stand when say a fire goes through, um, I'm I'm finding it a very valuable tool and uh, I've actually started to in, embrace it some. Uh, what that goes back to years ago, I heard a presentation by. Uh, I think it's Dale Thornburg, was a professor up at Humboldt State, and he had his chaos theory, and talked about you know like you go and uh, you know like in, especially in the Klamath region, uh, you look at the the natural forest out there, and you don't see a lot of big trees everywhere. You mm -hmm. see some big trees, you see some patches of smaller dense trees, you see trees that are spaced out wide, we see trees that are close together, and then you see areas that are 
uh, open, uh, kind of an early successional uh, part of the forest. And the early succession all plays a part in the healthy forest. So, uh, you know, if a, a natural fire goes through those areas, some places it burns hot, some places it burns low, and some places it doesn't touch. Mm -hmm. And uh, by using the, the, the VR prescription, uh, there are areas that we could create small openings, there are areas that we can thin, there are areas that we cannot touch, and still, you know, we meet all the guidelines of the forest practice rules, uh, and we end up with uh, a stand that uh, over time, as it begins to de develop more, again, because we're starting at a young age, these stands, uh, if a fire goes through the area, it's, it's going to break up. It's not going to start building up steam and just move up the hillside. Uh, and uh, so that's just another, mm -hmm. another tool, another way we're starting to look at mm -hmm. uh, things a little bit differently. Well, yeah, it's so interesting because fire played such an important role in balancing the normal ecological function of our of our landscape, right? And we've removed it, and now it seems to me that the scales, you know, are in this kind of uh, tipping point where we went from having uh, what you just described, very diverse habitat units that you know, may have different kinds of disturbances at different points of time and kind of kept things at different growth rates, um, which provides different kinds of habitats for different kinds of fish and wildlife. And then we uh, kind of, eat, like, tilted the scale in one direction by just clear-cutting and, and, and uh, really um, resetting the context of what, what kinds of diversity could be on the landscape. And now we've tilted it in another direction where we have so much fuel that fire can be really catastrophic. Like we can't even allow for fire to kind of occur as it would in these small patchy ways because we have too much fuel. And now we're trying to rebalance that through these different types of types of techniques of using fuel. Yeah, our our staff often talk about, you know, being able to put fire back on the landscape. But when we go out on the property, uh, I mean, we just, we cringe yeah. because it's like, where would we do it? There's nowhere that's set up to do that at mm -hmm. this point. And we, and we all realize it is a, uh, a valuable uh, a tool and a valuable part of the development of our, mm -hmm. of our forest. Yeah. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, the ways that the Redwood Forest Foundation has been involved in salmon and steelhead restoration or in, you know, kind of stream restoration overall? Um, what are some of the types of work that you've been involved with? Um, well, obviously the, the two big ones are uh, sediment reduction uh, projects such as road decommissioning and then uh, uh, installation of large wood structures in the creek themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously we talk a lot about our Stanley Creek project, which we... Uh, you know, worked on an entire sub-watershed with, within our property, or I guess you'd say watershed, because Stanley is a sub-watershed of the South Fork Eel, uh, and uh, went through decommissioned, you know, a large percentage of the roads that were located right down next to the creek. Uh, there was some large wood work in there, not as much as we've done in, in other watersheds. 
um, and we've done a lot of uh, you know, road inventory work, uh, road assessments, and our, we, we try to sit down with uh, our partners, of which TU is one of the major ones, and uh, Pacific Watershed Associates, another, uh, Eel River and uh, Earwig, mm -hmm. Eel River Watershed, Watershed Improvement Group. Group. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, always looking two or three years ahead of projects that we can possibly get funding for and, uh, and, and make improvements that way. And one of the newer projects that we are undertaking, of which you are intimately for, uh, familiar with, um, is starting to move upslope, kind of mm. move away from the creeks and seeing what type of impact we have on the creeks by managing the forest stands themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, roads are, have been and are known to be sources of um, chronic sediment, so that's sediment that's just slowly bled in all of the time from different drainage features of the road, or catastrophic, where it's an abandoned road and the whole road fails and it's like a landslide and it all goes into the channel. Um, but it also, roads and skid road development really disrupted the hydrology of the watershed. Um, and I think you're right, we're all very curious how much these young dense stands of trees are what their environmental need is and how that balances with the needs of fish and other wildlife. So I do think it's, it's a, it's an, it's a really interesting field, um, in science and in restoration. And there's continued, uh, value placed on asking those questions and bringing greater understanding to what we can do as land managers and restoration practitioners. Well, you know, we talk a lot about watershed restoration, and uh, it, it seems like we're focused on the creek when we say watershed restoration. But if you look at a watershed as an, uh, an entire unit, uh, a real small percentage of it is actually uh, flowing surface water. Mm -hmm. Most of it is underground. Most of it is forest. And if you want to do a real watershed restoration project, you need to start looking upslope and seeing what you can do there and how what you do upslope benefits what's downslope. We all know that happens. Right. But, you know, how to best manipulate those uh, forest upslope to improve the downslope, the downstream. So this issue of having low yeah we didn't really talk about it but you know the Utah redwood forest is a uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it it's kind of the northwestern corner of the the county uh, north of highway one north of leggett uh, about a third of it drains into Utah creek and the other two thirds are uh, the tribute some of the tributaries down into the south fork uh, south fork eel mm -hmm. and a lot of those tributaries are all you know entirely on uh, our property. Uh, we mentioned Stanley Creek, uh, Piercy Creek, uh, Bear Pen, mm -hmm. Wildcat, uh, and and to have such a large percentage or intact uh, watersheds all owned by one single landowner, you can get a lot done. 
Uh, agreed. We, in fact, Dave Wright and I were talking about that quite a bit in the last episode. And, you know, the, those areas that you just referenced, including the Usol Creek watershed, are critically important to steelhead and to salmon recovery. And so I think my last question for you then is, can you tell me why you think salmon restoration is important? Or why is it, why would a timber company, you know, care to engage in that kind of work? Well, it, I mean, the salmon are part of our forest. They're, they're in the creek, but they're part of the forest ecosystem. Uh, and uh, part of our mission is to uh, protect and restore uh, these lands. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they play an important part uh, in that picture. And you know, historically... You know, salmon is a big economic benefit to the local community, mm-hmm. and anything we can do to uh, uh, help restore that, and so we have a healthy salmon fisheries in the future. I mean, that's that's what we're all about. Okay. And one thing I just want to add, you know, if, if folks are, are interested in learning more about uh, the Redwood Forest Foundation or Utah Redwood Forest Company. Uh, feel free to go to our website, which is uh, rffi.org and uh, check us out and you know uh, we also are on Facebook and we'll be posting soon uh, you know when we start to open it up to do more public tours so uh, we'd love to have feedback from people and um, you know get get more input from the community and if you're just listening in that was my interview with Linwood Gill the chief forester for the USAL Redwood Forest Company You're listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listening supported community radio. This next interview was recorded with Ken Smith, a local licensed timber operator and the owner of Pacific Inland Incorporated, and with Dave Wright, a fisheries biologist and project manager for the Nature Conservancy. Dave and Ken, in collaboration with Blanco Watershed Management, are well known in the fisheries restoration community as experts in the field of stream restoration that is focused on placing large logs or whole trees into stream systems so they can improve fish habitat. Large wood is a critical component to healthy stream habitat because it sorts and cleans gravels for spawning adults to make their reds in, and it scours pools and provides cover for juvenile salmon to grow and rear. Ken and Dave have specific experience designing and implementing restoration projects that use the accelerated recruitment method, a low-cost, effective method of adding large wood to streams that primarily relies on direct falling of trees into the stream system and that does not rely on hardware to anchor the wood in place. Instead, logs are strategically wedged within the existing riparian area, so logs can remain dynamic under a range of flow events. Well, I think I I really wanted to sit down with both of you because you have both been um, involved in really developing and promoting the rapid recruitment of of large wood in streams in Mendocino County. And um, I remember, Dave, you told me that there was kind of a funny origin story to how you recruited Ken to come and help work on some of these projects. Yeah, um, we were trying to figure out how to get wood in the creek, and this was nearly 20 years ago. Um, And I had this idea that 
you know, if we called in a faller, an experienced timber, you know, faller or logger, um, that he and we selected specific trees, you know, we could get into watersheds without using equipment and we could put these trees, you know, strategically placed in the stream to create more structure in, in these streams. And that idea was just kind of gaining hold amongst restorationists around here. And I um, somehow, through Chris Blanco, uh, well, Chris and I approached Ken about this idea, and we had all the permits and everything else to work on Ten Mile River, and we took Ken out into the field, out to the river, to show him the river, and we described what we wanted him to do. Now, the backstory on this is that timber fallers were, like, strictly forbidden from ever dropping wood in the creek, and so... When I told Ken we wanted to drop these big logs in the creek, he looked at me and he goes, is this a trick? <laughs> um, he thought it was a setup, like, you know, I was, I was going to set him up and he was going to get a fine. <laughs> but actually that started a whole, I mean, Ken, I think you've been working on this for 15 for years now? Easy 15 years, exactly, and... Um... Uh, we've certainly refined our techniques since that first episode. <laughs> yeah, that first experience, it was on the South Fork 10 Mile, right? right, right. It kind of, I've always, I wasn't there, but I've heard a lot of stories about it. So maybe if one of you could kind of walk us through what that was like and what mm. challenges you encountered. Well, we started low down in the South Fork and uh, Dave had marked some really sizable redwood trees that he wanted in the stream and it, the stream is fairly wide we needed really long pieces so that that was our introduction to it and and I had been a timber faller for many years and and knew how to handle redwood on the steep hillsides but falling a redwood into the creek uh, and keeping it long was uh, obviously a challenge and we had our <laughs> we had our moments in the beginning and uh, Dave likes to remind me of the time that I hit my pickup with a prickly <laughs> yeah. tree. Yeah, this tree, um, it got what limb-locked? Is that the it right? It was limb-locked, exactly, to, the, to its neighbor. Yeah. yeah, and so the tree fell at not the angle that none of any of us thought. And the tree actually didn't hit Ken's truck, but it hit a, an alder tree, which came over, and that hit Ken's yeah. truck. And for a couple of years, he was driving around with this truck with a big dent in the cab, which he would never admit uh, what actually happened there. So I take um, it that, that hadn't happened to you before? And never. No. <laughs> not, not a typical, trucks aren't a typical no. casualty of, of uh, the but timber we tree. But were, we were able to, to salvage the tree, and we moved it into the stream. Oh, and it was actually a really nice stick once we got it into the oh. tree. So. Yeah. It wasn't a total loss. I also heard that there were exploding redwoods in that first endeavor too yeah that uh, was that was my fault because i didn't know anything about timber harvesting and i was just looking at these big trees up on the slope going yeah let's let's put that one in the creek and so ken would try to drop it in the creek but they when you drop a creek from way up high on the on a steep bank you're you're dropping it into this u-shaped concave and well, the first couple of trees, redwoods that we dropped, they just 
basically blew up. We took yeah. this expensive, valuable tree and we turned it into splinters. Mm. Um, so yeah, like Ken said, there was a learning curve. <laughs> and and for what was it like for you, Ken, being asked to do this? I mean, and going out. For the I first was time. game. I mean, I you know I I was ready at that point to for changes and I was uh, I was having a good time and I and I felt like I was being supported it wasn't as though someone was looking over my shoulder saying why the heck are you breaking up these trees <laughs> but uh, no I think I um, like Dave said we we had uh, we had to learn a few things and one of the things we learned was that uh, large second growth redwood is pretty brash stuff it, it breaks easily uh, so we figured out ways to, to uh, get it into the stream that weren't as, as uh, catastrophic. <laughs> and, but we were still, I mean, I think we were still, you know, breaking maybe a third of the, the top of the trees, but we were getting long enough sticks for that wide channel that it was, uh, it was paying off. Don't you think? Yeah. One of the um, cool things that I think we developed that I really liked was I guess there's this thing in timber falling called a layout where basically you build a cushion mm -hmm. to, uh, to drop the, the log on. And what we ended up doing in some of the channels in 10 Mile was that we would drop some nearby alders, which are um, alders by themselves will, will stump sprout. So even when you cut them down, um, you know, they'll regenerate. So we would drop alders in the creek. And then that would act as like a mattress or a cushion, and then we could drop the much more valuable redwoods on top. And, keep and long. Yeah. yeah, and the alders too um, add a lot of really valuable nutrients to the stream system that feed all the invertebrates, which in the end feed salmon. Mm -hmm. And Ken, you, you, you mentioned that you were looking for a change professionally, so can you talk a little bit about what your career has been and what kind of work you've done in the area? Sure. Um, I started in, when I was still in college, uh, I took a job setting chokers for Oakerstrom up in Rockport. Took a semester off from school and uh, uh, decided that I needed to get back to college because I never wanted to do that again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and it also, you know, it always is a cautionary tale. You don't want to take a summer job. Sometimes. Isn't, that's one of the most dangerous jobs on the job, right? Yeah. Job setting. Yeah. 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 Well, I certainly learned. Uh, but I, uh, so then when I got out of school, I uh, worked for a newspaper and I worked at a few other things. And eventually I ended up back in the woods um, in the early, well, the late 70s, I guess it was. I had a shingle mill. So that's, that was my introduction to, to the logging was uh, supplying material for my shingle mill and then we started contract logging in the in the early 80s and uh, uh, did that until 2000 hmm. and, uh, so uh, but yeah I, I, as far as uh, looking for something new I um, the world of logging had changed pretty dramatically in the time that I'd been in it and uh, it was getting harder and harder to make a decent living at it and harder to to keep good employees and and buy decent equipment and that was I found it a little frustrating so I went off to do other things and then Dave called. So in other episodes we've talked a lot about those changes in, in forestry and to um, 
force practice rules. And I'm curious um, if you've, in your work, noticed, you know, any benefits that have come from those types of changes, particularly that are related to water quality and salmon. Sure. I think it's actually interesting. The year I started working for Oakstrom, I think, was the the first year of the Zeebert Nedgerly Act, which was the Forest Practice Act in California. And um, I, you know, because I was pretty green, I didn't know anything about logging at that point. Um, I, I guess I didn't understand how profound that was, but it made a huge difference. It was the, the county uh, logging was almost exclusively cat logging in those days still. Uh, there was a lot of dirt moved and uh, you could tell that, uh, you know, just a few years before that, there was a lot of degradation to the to the watersheds. And uh, with the Forest Practice Acts, uh, just, I mean, just the mere rule of water barring made a, a huge difference in, in uh, sediment. And uh, I, I think they could have pushed a little harder for um, silvicultural changes, but just just making contractors water bar every trail was mm -hmm. huge. And to pull crossings, do, you know, do the basics. Things we just take for granted now, it was brand new in those days. So uh, I always think that the, uh, <clears throat> the big 64 flood was really aggravated by terrible logging practices. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in this area, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you do you, have you witnessed changes in salmon runs and returns oh, of sure. adults and stuff over when time? When we were kids, of course, we were. Uh, I grew up in in a on a tributary of the um, the eel, but um, yeah, the salmon steelhead probably more so were just you know thick in the winter time, and uh, you know, gradually that just wasn't the case anymore. <laughs> I'm curious uh, to learn a little bit more, too, about how your work history as a professional logger, uh, how the, that skill set uh, helped enable you to do this work, this restoration work, and how you brought some of the knowledge that you have from that industry into mm -hmm. this one. Well, I guess generally, uh, as a logger, you... you, you you learn how heavy objects move in the real world, and it's um, and logs especially are sort of unique. You know, they finding the center of gravity, understanding what a piece of equipment will do, understanding what the the the, uh, the material will handle, uh, what tensile strength that redwood has as opposed to a dug fir or a white fir. Those are, you know, those are all things that you have to know as a logger, and it's also something that's pretty invaluable in restoration. So that, those kinds of things, and then just practically understanding how equipment works and how you can, you, you know, use equipment to your advantage without tearing up the countryside too badly. Yeah, I mean, I think we all kind of, um, those of us that have worked with you are a little bit in awe of your skills as a, both a timber faller and an equipment operator, and I'm going to embarrass you a little, maybe not, but when I was first hired, my predecessor would refer to you as the Hollywood logger. <laughs> <laughs> <It> Lisa! Was... <laughs> She's blushing now if she knew I'd say that. Um, and I, it's because um, we have asked you to do what we consider to be like almost impossible feats where we will, you know, request that you 
cut a log across the belly of a creek channel and then have it land, you know, between two existing standing riparian trees and you do it with such grace and such ease. And I've also watched you work from your equipment and place wood that you couldn't even see or it didn't seem like you could see where it was going, but your, your team was helping direct you. Um, so I'm curious, what's one of the most challenging projects that you've worked on and, and have you, have you ever been like really stumped with how to, you know, do what's been asked of you? Well, uh, I think that, uh, our process, uh, keeps me from being stumped because, you know, Christopher runs through the creek, runs, he, he spends a lot of time designing projects and each time we come to a site, uh, we have a little mini conference and we discuss the, the feasibility of what he's designed and usually it's really good, but occasionally we'll make adjustments on site. And so that kind of keeps me from, well, figuratively hitting my pickup anymore. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. uh, so I, but I think, yeah, the direct falling is the most challenging part and it's also the uh, most stimulating part mm -hmm. for me. Uh, and and doing you know doing that kind of precision falling in the streams uh, was new to me and uh, and I and I got better at it mm -hmm. and I think I'm I'm pretty good at it now but uh, yeah I was it, I love the challenge of that yeah and of course threading things threading trees through the riparian zone and not tearing things all up that's that's the other thing that's a challenge and it's a lot of fun when it works right yeah that is definitely something I noticed when I first started working up here was how little um and insignificant the impacts were wherever you guys were working you could barely tell where the equipment had been and I had never worked on a restoration project where there was like that light of a touch mm. Yeah, so Dave, what about for you? Like what were your what are some other experiences you had or how have you learned from Ken even in your own work and trying to make determinations about where and what kinds of projects we can do? Well, my motivation for this rapid recruitment thing, I mean, I had multiple priorities, but one of them was that I wanted a method that we could apply in watersheds where um we couldn't get equipment at all. And so we did this project in the Middle Fork of Ten Mile uh, with Ken, um, where I went out and selected trees, and then Ken and I just kind of walked up the creek and, and dropped these uh, trees in the stream system. You know, you know, no equipment at all, just Ken and his chainsaw and me kind of selecting the wrong trees. Um, <laughs> And I got to say, after five or I think we did that seven years ago, that is one of the most successful projects we've ever done. And it was also one of the most economical. And, and mm -hmm. So I have to say, I learned a ton when I, when I worked on that project with Ken. Yeah, it's one of the things I really like about working in restoration is that... Um, I feel like as time goes on, the the kind of restoration movement keeps tapping into all of these different industries and trying to learn from them. Because if we only did everything based off of our, you know, distinct knowledge of biology, then we wouldn't understand how physical habitat, you know, factors in or how uh, other types of social and economic inter interactions occur. Mm -hmm. And then I love that we get to work you know, with the same industry that um, first kind of began to make changes to our landscape to help, you know, correct some of the um, 
kind of impairments that now salmon and steelhead face. Um, so I'm curious for you, Ken, do you feel like the work that you've been doing is making a difference and, and, and why do you think salmon restoration is important? Well, obviously, you know, being a local boy, I'm anxious to see the fish come back. Um, but, and yes, I, it's mostly from my perspective, it's anecdotal, but you, we, we go back to, to the streams we've treated in the past in the winter or even in the spring and, you can see the difference. You can see the the difference in the stream bed and the in the complexity, and you can also see fish that we weren't seeing before. So yeah, I mean, I I feel like it's a success story. Uh, yeah, well, it kind of tie, ties into a conversation we've had before on the show um, about getting this kind of you know repeating and a natural cycle and getting this conveyor belt of wood going through the system. So. What Dave and I have talked before, and you might want to talk about this again, Dave, for anybody that didn't catch a previous episode, um, you know that we have fairly even age stands of trees now in our forests and particularly in our riparian areas, so we don't have as much of that old wood mm-hmm. falling in naturally. Um, and so what we've been trying to do as restorationists is get those big logs in, those key pieces mm-hmm. that really do have an ability to either, you know, uh, recruit or collect more wood or scour mm-hmm. some big change in the creek channel. Um, but what we're missing is just that constant supply that would yeah. have come in every year. Yeah, that is our biggest problem. And, and as I said before, but I guess I'll repeat myself, you know, our our goal here, or our intent is not to be putting in wood in the creek when, you know, for the next hundred years. Our goal is, this is just a stopgap, you know, uh, emergency measure to try to um, make up for the fact that the repairing carters around here now in these redwood forests are made up of really young redwood trees. And, you know, young redwoods just don't die. So um, if we're just waiting for natural... uh, mortality for the trees to fall in the creek we're going to be waiting for a long time and that's why also putting wood in the creek helps us out so much because what happens is it creates scour it creates these dynamic elements in the hydrology and that's what brings in more wood into the creek because it it creates these streamside landslides and bank erosion and all these these dynamic forces that bring more wood into the creek I think you you used to refer to it as priming the pump, which I I think was the perfect term. We're we're trying to get the system functioning again. Yeah, we're trying, you know, the timber harvest practice rules, all these different rules that we've engaged to help these watersheds are basically to try to get it back to functioning naturally. But, But there are things that I think that we can do that prime that pump to, mm-hmm. get, to get the system working again. Yeah, definitely. The evolution of large wood. If you think about it in a natural system, wood transport through a coniferous forest system is a natural part of aquatic ecology. I mean, streams fall, uh, uh, trees fall in the creek. They break up a bit, they, they, they make pools, they, they move some more, they make some more pools, they make scour, they, you know, they, they sort gravel, and they just keep doing this as they move down the stream. And then 
the next storm comes through and another tree falls in. So it's, it's always this conveyor belt uh, of, you know, large wood through the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, while we were interviewing, it just started downpouring a little. And it reminds me that the salmon have started running in our creeks. Um, I think they just detected, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife just detected the first coho in the South Fork of the Noyo. Have you seen any salmon running in the 10 mile yet, Dave? Yeah, well, we have um, arrays, antenna arrays in the 10 mile on all the major forks of 10 mile that detect these type of tags called pit tags. And that stands for passive integrated transponders. And these are the same tags that they use in the cattle industry and also uh, even in your, your dogs and cats, uh, when, they, when they, the vets put in a tag. And so we're detecting fish that we uh, tagged in 2018 as babies, as juveniles, and now we're seeing them come back as adults, or we're, we're detecting them. We don't actually see them. And one of the detections that we just got was a fish that was actually tagged in the Noyo, in the South Fork of the Noyo, and we um, detected that fish on the middle fork of 10 miles. So um, this young fish, probably a couple inches long when they tagged it, went down the Noyo, out into the North Pacific, up through probably the Alaska Gyre, and then came back, you know, thousands upon thousands of miles, and then made, it, made its way back up the 10 mile to the Clark Fork to spawn. Just in time for the holidays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, do you guys have anything else you want to add? I guess I just, uh, as a final thought, I mean, you know, this whole process and, and working with, with timber folks um, was really a learning experience for me, right? And I guess what I learned... Uh, over the past 15 or 20 years is no one wanted to see these fish, you know, be, you know, their demise. It's really the things that happened and the things that, you know, hurt these fish were just things that we didn't know. Yeah, they were like incidental consequences. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the original idea of all this, you know, sediment in the stream. I mean, at the time, People just didn't know that that was a problem for fish. I mean, it wasn't until mm -hmm. we did the research, we, we, people experimented, people observed stuff, um, that we learned things and then we changed. And I think that that's the biggest benefit to all of this is that we're learning and changing. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that, uh, I mean, to expand on what Dave was saying, I think that there was this... Um, maybe a mentality, especially in the Redwood country, that we were fairly insignificant. We were dealing with these monstrous trees in this monstrous country, and what we did couldn't possibly have an effect on on something as big as uh, the fisheries. Mm -hmm. And it took a while to, to figure out, in fact, we do have an effect on that. Yeah. Well, and um, I think, I, at least what I've heard is that there was also this assumption that there were so many salmon that there was no way mm -hmm. that they would be reduced right. to the numbers that they are today. I mean, we think we think they're at about two to four percent mm -hmm. of what the historic populations were. 
And so I think people just had no idea. I mean, it's kind of probably how people feel about the abalone Definitely. and the kelp die-off right mm -hmm. now. Like, no one could have ever guessed Anticipated that that, that would right. have happened. Right. Yeah. Right. This concludes another episode of the Ecology Hour. Thank you to my guests, and thank you to my coworker Renee Henry, for helping me write that introductory poem. Go Coho! This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.